that somehow we, we live in a literary atmosphere. I mean, we, we live and breathe literature to some extent in, in that we, when we tell stories or when we write letters and so on, we are making a form um, out of something which might be formless. And this is one of, of course, the deep motives for literature or for art of any sort, uh, that one is defeating the formlessness of the world. One is imposing order on one's Yes, one is cheering oneself on one's up one's and consoling oneself uh, uh, and also, of course, instructing oneself by giving a form to something which is perhaps alarmingly formless in its original condition, a sort of rubble, as if we lived in a kind of rubble world and one's always making forms. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. And I'm Soren Rearguard, and we are here to... Wait a minute, Carl. Do you... Do you hear some... My God. What is that? That sounds like Friedrich Peachy's music. It can't be. Is that... Friedrich Peachy? Hi, good to be here. Good to be here. Happy to be participating in my first pod. I've been really busy trying to philosophize with a few different tools and figure out how to make this work. I was philosophizing with a level, but things were just coming out really unevenly. I had no spirit. Then I started to philosophize with a wrench, but things got really nuts. But recently I've been philosophizing with a mallet and I got to say, I think I'm onto something. I thought you, I thought you were thinking that pod is dead. I always knew you were mallet-justed. <laughs> In all seriousness, I've been away as a new parent. And so I'm actually writing my own manifesto for parenting. It's called Gotzen Daderung. That's oh, it. my gosh. This is, why you, this is why you tune in, listeners, all, all 10 of you. Welcome back. We're, we're super excited to have Friedrich Peachy on board. My wife was telling me as she was talking about the pot, she said, you know, if I didn't know he was a real person, I would think he was a running joke that you just inserted and you had no intention of ever including, but he is here in, in person this time and uh, hopefully here for the, for the foreseeable future as well. As we, as we move forward, we're really excited to have him on board. If this doesn't go well, I'm happy to fade off into the ether and become a running joke again. <laughs> well, Instead of being a new dad, you're joke. more of a jogging joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So we got a great pod tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about sort of a surprising Christmas book. It's at least set partly, <laughs> part, partly at Christmas. So we got some themes there, at least as much of a Christmas book as Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Iris Murdoch's novel, A Severed Head, which is a really wonderful, bizarre, funny, I find it very funny book that's got a lot of philosophy sort of baked into it around the edges. So I'm going to start off and just tell you a couple things about Iris Murdoch. You may not be as familiar with her as you maybe were with Dostoevsky or James Baldwin. Iris Murdoch is a British author in the mid 20th century with a very distinctive set of jobs. She started out actually as a professional philosopher in the post-war period 
and then gradually started writing more and more novels and then eventually basically just became a full-time novelist because her, her books were well received. She's known for a very unique style in some ways, not super flashy on the prose level, but really wonderful, rich sentences and being very funny and being very strange in terms of her plots. A lot of emphasis on group dynamics, how groups work together, whether that's a set of friends or that's a a more formal institution and uh, some very darkly funny writing that's also has a, a sort of philosophical edge to it. So we're going to be reading her book, A Severed Head, tonight. But I want to start out with a quick discussion of a piece of literary criticism that she wrote called Against Dryness. And I'll, I'll include a link to this in the show notes. You can go read it. It's a really wonderful short piece of literary criticism, but I think it's one of the best, uh, most thoughtful explorations of the 20th century novel that has been written. Just wanted to throw out a couple of ideas from that and then think about how those maybe play out in A Severed Head. In particular, I want to, I want to think about, since we have for the first time a person who is professionally invested in philosophy as a discipline and in literature as a discipline to think about the formal and informal ways in which philosophy and literature are working together in her work. In particular, and I will include a link in the show notes to this as well, but Carl sent out a video as we were prepping for this pod, a really interesting interview with Murdoch on TV talking about literature and philosophy. And she seems to downplay the interplay in her works between philosophy and literature. She says, when I'm doing philosophy, I'm a philosopher. When I'm doing literature, I'm a writer and I'm not thinking about philosophy. And if I were to be, it would be bad. It wouldn't really work out. I think we would all agree though, that that's maybe at least a slightly misleading answer in terms of Murdoch and what she's trying to do. Certainly that's not our view of things, but I don't even think it's really Murdoch's view, at least strongly speaking. Even yeah. though a, a book like A Severed Head is a, a, is a literary work, it's also doing philosophy. She has this strange comment in the interview where she says, were I a shipbuilder, I would include things about shipbuilding and would almost be happier if I were that kind of person and then therefore not include these philosophical things, which I only include because I happen to have studied them. And it's, it's a baffling... Uh, huge downplay of the interrelation between philosophy and literature. Yeah, if that were the case, the novel that I'm writing right now, my long simmering novel would be all about late 90s butt rock, which it's not. So <laughs> uh, it's an odd, it's an odd uh, comment for sure. And I don't think it's really borne out by the work itself. She is a very philosophical novelist in some very complex ways. So thinking about Against Dryness, in this essay, what I'm really interested in is these two big categories she sets up. She's diagnosing kind of what's wrong with, with literature today, which is a very common um, setup for an essay, but she takes it in some interesting directions. She's, she divides the post-war literary scene kind of into two categories. And she talks about journalistic writing and crystalline writing. And journalistic writing is very plain, as it suggests, right? Vested in the features of nonfiction writing, journalistic, and it wants to say something important about the world. And then you have crystalline writing, which is very beautiful and complex and ornately structured, but maybe doesn't have a whole lot to say. And she's sort of pushing against both of those categories in her writing and wants to recapture something a little bit more vibrant, more ethical, I think she would argue, but also a beautiful in its own right. It's a really interesting essay. She, and I think in her, her fiction and her criticism, she sets up really interesting pairings or maybe dichotomies to kind of think about. And I wonder, Soren, if you could tell us, since you're more of an expert on Murdoch, a lot of critics see her as not 
efficiently or effectively producing the kind of literature that she talks about in her criticism. I know like James Wood has kind of said that. I wonder if you could maybe give us some more insight on that. But she also brings up in Andrinus this sense that Kant and, and Hume uh, have given us these two portraits of the world that are kind of sticking points for her about where literature has gone. And that's the Humean materialistic behaviorist notion of the self and the Kantian sense that there is the solitary will. And without that, you aren't really a person who can do anything. And it's those two poles that people are left sort of between to no end uh, when writing literature. And she wants to get out of that. I think that's a really good point, Carl. You know, she is, she sort of famously self-declares herself to be a Platonist in a you know, time when it's not very popular, especially in British academic philosophy. That's not a wow. particularly popular position to take. And so she's invested in deeper realities. Certainly she's not a Humean in that sense. She would reject mm -hmm. that, that materialistic view. But I think she's also against the Kantian view. She is, and certainly I think you would need to be to be a novelist, she is invested in the sociality of novels and thinking about how you can't really have ethics when you're by yourself, right? And so she's in, invested, I think, pretty heavily in the ethical dimensions of the novel and how people work together within that the confines of a, of a novelistic plot to treat or mistreat each other. And so I think that there's a there's a richness there of sociality that's not that would be absent from a Kantian um, approach to the novel, if you could imagine such a thing. But also, you know, there's a sense of a reality behind the material you know, there's maybe some novelists in the 20th century would push towards that clear, you know, purely a material reality that's on the page, a sort of Humean view of the novel. And she's, she's certainly pushing against that. She wants to leave space for the indescribable and maybe the irrational aspects of the will as well. She seems to want to um, make a claim for like a re-enchanted world that is nevertheless devoid of the religion that we've inherited in some way. She seems to follow in the footsteps of my namesake. She seems to be like a latter-day Nietzschean who Nietzsche famously said George Eliot was uh, like a Christian ethicist without Christian religion, right? That mm -hmm. she she should have let go of the ethics that came with that religion just as she let go of her belief in that religion. In the Against Dryness, Iris Murdoch talks about how we no longer see a man. This is a quote, we no longer see a man against a background of values of realities which transcend him. And then she goes on to refer to Tolstoy as someone who understood that literature reflects the religious feeling of the day. But she also wants to move past that to something else. It seems like she's invested in exploring the absurdity of reality as something that isn't able to be boiled down to what we, we boil it down to through empirical uh, experimentation. But what she's actually saying it is, is unclear. And I think that's, that comes through in a severed head and it's deliberate. I don't think she wants to say this is what reality is. There's a richness that can't really be defined for her. I think that's fair. Absolutely. Her characters tend to be on a search for something that's maybe not quite capturable. It's, it's, it's elusive, but there is some sense of the reality of the search and something that makes her, I think, a, a very important and interest, lastingly interesting novelist of this period. She's kind of funnily, originally grouped in with this group of novelists right after the Second World War called the Angry Young Men. She's not 
a young man, nor is she, I think, particularly angry. But when her first novel came out, Under the Net, and, and a couple of her, her earliest novels, she was lumped in with these young men who were sort of rebelling against society. They were tended to be lower class, from lower class backgrounds. And they were pretty heavily materialistic in a lot of ways in their writing and very journalistic, I would say, very intent on just capturing material reality and even rejecting a lot of the what they saw as sort of the mumbo jumbo of metaphysical reality. But even though she was kind of quickly lumped in with them uh, because of the sense of rebellion that's there in her early work, I think that what makes her novels a little bit more lasting than a lot of their work, although there's some, there's some good stuff in The Angry Young Men, is this deeper and richer sense of reality that's behind her work and the sense that her characters are not just rebelling against class consciousness or something like that. They're engaged in a search for meaning that, that connects beyond just that immediate post-war period. Um, so she's not as stuck in her moment as maybe some of the angry young men are. Yeah, but I, I think that what um, Friedrich was saying makes sense. And when you bring in the angry young men, I think they're all sort of on this path of this Nietzschean path, right? Of revaluing all value in some way. And I think, Sarn, you're probably right that she's a little farther down the path than the angry young men, at least <laughs> in this early stage. But I would I would disagree with your point that the Kantian novelist would have nothing here. She gets a little, she gets close on uh, to some kind of Kantian point and almost like a space that I think Robert Musil occupies, who I think is the great Kantian novelist, if there is such a thing. When she says, we, we need a new theory of liberal personality. Mm -hmm. um, so you're talking about sociality and, and she's talking about personality too. A new rich moral, conceptual, and political vocabulary for liberal personhood outside of these simplistic Kantian and Humean views. And, and it's interesting that she brings up, I think Tolstoy is kind of a good answer to that. Mm -hmm. But then also Nabokov and Beckett in this essay, she brings up though in that, on that point, she's talking more about style. But yeah, it's a fascinating uh, little essay. Definitely worth a read. To Carl's point too, I agree that bringing up Nabokov and uh, Beckett is interesting because it's about how they're whatever moral investments in their literature are inseparable from their style, which I love. I think that's an important point that she's making. And I, she, interestingly, she goes back to the Victorian novel as something that seems alive because its context is, she says, alive and dynamic. And by the time we get to modernism, I guess, that feeling has gone away. But she seems to be making this sort of, sort of old-fashioned call in the essay for, quote, techniques of improvement, virtue as knowledge, that there are these sort of dusty, musty Victorian novel things that are actually can be dusted off and used in our novels that they're, they're interesting to talk about. I had questions for both of you. Can I throw out a question? On that same page, she kind of starts moving toward like a cultural critique of not only books today, but movies. And as I know some watchers, Karmazov in this room have opinions on movies. I wanted to ask you, there's a quote I'm going to pull out. She says, on the whole, the modern writer his truth is sincerity. His imagination is fantasy. Fantasy operates either with shapeless daydreams, the journalistic story, or with small myths, toys, crystals. Each in his own way produces a sort of dream necessity. Neither grapples with reality, hence fantasy, not imagination. If imagination is fantasy, I wanted to ask whether they saw that borne out in the movies of today. If uh, filmmakers are interested in small myths, toys, and crystals, rather than... Uh, true imagination. Oh, absolutely. You're, <laughs> you're in our sweet spot right there. Um, that's a, This is a chance to promo, by the way, friends, on our patrons only podcast, we've been talking movies. And uh, actually, we're about, we will have released uh, for the general public our a wonderful episode on Toy Story by now. So give that a listen. You can hear some of Carl's, I think, really trenchant insights into 
some of those ideas about what it is we're actually doing when we think about using imagination in movies. The Toy Story points that uh, Carl makes are great, and I recommend checking them out. Your hands will be scalded by the hot takes. All right, well, let's move on for now uh, before, I, before I go off on a rant about the monoculture. Let's, let's start talking about, about A Severed Head, which is a delightfully strange and off-putting novel. Um, so I'm going to, as we always do on the show, I'm going to give a quick recap of the plot. And it is important here, and I'll give you some warnings if you're heavily invested in the plot of this 50, 60-year-old novel. Boilers will happen because we can't really talk about the book without talking about some of the important plot twists that happen. But essentially, this is a story about upper-class British people, as many British novels are. But the the narrator and the, the protagonist is a man named Martin Lynch Gibbon. He is a kind of well-to-do, independent means British man a- after the, the Second World War. He is married to a woman of society named Antonia. They have a seemingly, on the surface, happy marriage. Although when we first meet Martin, he is, in fact, hanging out with his mistress, Georgie, who's a much younger kind of graduate student figure. And so we can tell from the beginning, right, things aren't as perfect as maybe they would pretend. But he does seem to be happy in his marriage. He's happy with basically the stasis of his life, the inertia of his life. He's got a wife and that provides one thing for him. And then he has a mistress that his wife doesn't know about. And that provides something very different for him. The plot of the novel really kicks off when Antonia, his wife, informs him very bluntly, I'm, I'm leaving you for your best friend and my psychoanalyst, this American named Palmer Anderson. And uh, from that moment on, Martin's life keeps getting more and more complex Primarily, it gets complex in the form of Palmer's sister, Honor Klein, who is an anthropologist, who comes in and basically takes charge of everybody's lives. What we get for the rest of the novel is essentially a sort of random combination of people getting together with each other in a romantic way, in some very odd combinations. Martin ends up falling in love with Honor, he thinks, or maybe it's not really love, it's just some sort of powerful compulsion. He goes to talk to her um, when he gets to her um, apartment. He discovers her in bed with, of all people, her brother, Palmer, her half-brother, Palmer. That's a running theme, is this sort of incest line throughout. In the end of the book, everybody's all mixed up. So his wife, Antonia, has left Palmer. He thought she was coming back to him, but then she actually runs off with his brother, uh, Martin's brother, Alexander. And Palmer has run off with his mistress, Georgie. And so sort of through the, the revolving door of relationships here, Martin is free to pursue whatever this is he's going to pursue with Honor Klein at the end of the book, which is a very short way of describing a book that's very complicated in its maneuvers and what it's doing. But that's a very simple sort of plot analysis. There's a lot of very strange stuff that goes on. I think especially that that chapter where he discovers Honor in bed with her brother is a very disturbing chapter for him as a character and for us as readers, presumably. There's a lot going on that, that kind of builds up to that moment and then kind of flows out of that moment and in terms of the novelistic structure. There's a lot going on here, um, but I wanna throw it over to you guys and just see what you wanna talk about from the novel. The title is kind of referenced multiple times throughout as well, where Martin's brother, Alexander, is like a sculptor, and he has severed heads, one of which is of Martin's wife, who we learn later they've been having an affair the whole time, even though at various stages Martin thinks that he's sort of keeps holding his cards to his chest with respect to Antonia, and she doesn't really know certain things that he's doing, certain other affairs, third and fourth liaisons that are going on. The whole time he's been duped and she was having an affair before any of his affairs. But then also this like severed head comment comes to be like a 
point of dialogue between him and uh, Honor about this like act of cutting one's someone's head off with a sword. Ambivalence of what a severed head is and whose severed head is out there. To Carl's point about Alexander secretly being Antonia's lover that whole time and Martin not knowing while Martin keeps his cards to his chest and sort of seems to be trying to be a free agent who can maneuver in the world. And against dryness, Iris Murdoch writes that she wants we writers to turn from the self-centered concept of sincerity to the other self-centered concept of truth. And then in a great line says, we are not isolated free choosers, monarchs of always survey, but benighted creatures sunk in a reality whose nature we are constantly and overwhelmingly tempted to deform by fantasy. And she claims that her philosophy and literature or her philosophy and her creative writing don't overlap, but um, this book seems like a complete embodiment of that sensibility. Uh, Martin is someone who, as Carl was saying, wants to be in control of knowledge and wants to be in control of his secrets. And almost at every turn in this book is surprised by his reality. I mean, and beyond the wildest fantasies of perhaps himself, by the time we get to page 128 and Palmer's in bed with his sister, I think we can throw whatever idea he had of morality out the window. We're totally in a different world now. And I think that that's one of the major themes of the book. These are these are great points from, from both of you that the arc, I don't want to call it a moral arc, but the, the, the development arc that Martin undergoes over the course of the novel is really, I think it's fair to call it a waking up to reality. And it, it's a move from a place where he thinks he can go through life passively and simply reacting to what goes on around him, but remaining in control to a place where he realizes by the end that he does not have control and he has to surrender his sense of control really over to honor. As a person, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from the near the beginning of the book that really drive this home. He's describing himself near the beginning of the book, and he says this, equally precious is the reputation, which I have more lately gained, of having become morose, something of a recluse, something indeed of a philosopher and cynic, one who expects little and watches the world go by. Antonia accuses me of being flippant, but Georgie once pleased me more by saying that I had the face of someone laughing at something tragic. And that's a kind of a perfect encapsulation of who Martin is at the beginning of the book. He is a cynic. He watches the world go by. And it's kind of wonderfully encapsulated for me in his chosen amateur profession, which is uh, as a military historian. And he's writing a book about the 30 years war, which is really wonder a wonderful encapsulation, right? It's this sort of thing. It seems so dry and dusty. And then if you think about it, you know, you may be like read a book that tries to put you in that place, like Brecht's play Mother Courage that puts you in the midst of that war, you realize, oh my gosh, this is like a terrible place to be. But he's able to approach it just very dryly, very distantly, and very much in control of it. This is what he says when he learns about the fact that Antonio wants a divorce. He says, I was conscious of wondering and of deciding now how I ought to react. And that's a really wonderful encapsulation of that idea. He doesn't have enough humanity inside of himself to react and say like what the hell right his his initial response is just like okay that's nice you're in love with my best friend you'll get over it don't worry about it you'll get over it let's just go on undisturbed but then eventually he reaches this point and he says well i was thinking about how i should respond to this and his choice in fact at the beginning is just to go along with it he's like okay sure that's great you guys you guys take up with each other. I'll kind of let you make all the decisions. I'm going to float along. And he's gradually forced to confront that. And I think by the end to move past that as a character, to move past that passivity. Speaking again of Murdoch's points against Hume and Kant, Hume's idea of the art critic or the 
person interested in art is, you know, the perfectly dispassionate viewer who has a sort of immaculate taste that comes from their ability to extract themselves from any value judgment or artistic judgment. And yes, yeah, so what you just read, I was conscious of wondering and of deciding now how I ought to react. That's a huge takedown to me of like a, the perfect human critic with their perfect taste, looking even at themselves at a distance. And she says in on dryness too, she wants to give people a different, a new richer sense of distance, but of the obscurity of personality and your distance, renewing our sense of distance, meaning from yourself in a way. And I think for her, that only comes through a, a non-dried, non-human, messy sense of your involvement in all these things. So like you're saying, it can't be the 30 years war, this super academic, super dry, distant thing that you're not going to go out on the street and find anyone with like a passionate view about what should have happened in the 30 years war, right? So this is where he's starting to become, you know, severed from that old viewpoint. That's a great point about taste, Carl, in particular, because his actual job is running his family's <laughs> wine business. Right. Um, and yeah. he's sort of the chief taster of the wines, right? He And he's the one with impeccable taste. He's always bringing over bottles of wine for people. He's telling people, or he's always, he's always chiding his mistress because she wants to just like drink the the wine right away instead of letting it air out for three hours like you're supposed to do. And so he's got that, he does, he has that impeccable taste, but it's not attached to anything real. And so it's a sort of bloodless taste. Bloodless is a, yeah, that's a great choice of words too. He's inherited the wine company and he's sort of thrust into the position of the man whose taste matters for that company. Other people tell him that Claret, which is their primary product is no good. And he sort of has to defend it only because he has to. It's just, that's what he is. He's like the quintessential mid-century British protagonist, but Myris Murdoch throws him into this super weird world that's not at all quintessential to my idea of mid-century British literature. His hobby as a military historian is great because it's, it's such a dispassionate and boring relation to violence that Honor Klein really tries to draw him away from. By the midpoint of the novel, his connection to violence heightens. He becomes a purveyor of violence. Kind of want to, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I kind of want to talk about Honor Klein, her name, her job. Can we jump into that? Yeah, please do. Please do. So she's an anthropologist. And anthropologists, in my contemporary view in the academic world, seem to really be invested in alternative ontologies, in different ways of being and not even just knowing the world, but of totally existing in a totally different way you can never understand. And for Martin, I think she does sort of represent a version of that, that she's someone who's bringing in morality that doesn't even connect to his sense of what's real. But she's also bringing in the dark gods, as they both say, and a sort of older honor culture that basks in violence and demands violence. So when they first meet, she tells him, you know, you could still get your wife back from Palmer if you just act. And eventually he does act and he, he punches Palmer and kind of wins her back, Antonia back for a while. He attacks Honor Klein and they keep that a secret between the two of them and it becomes the sort of basis of their love. And in the most intriguing, one of the most intriguing chapters, she whips out a samurai sword and does the little exhibition for him with it, cuts a napkin in half. And the samurai sword is of course connected to the Bushido culture, the, the honor culture of the samurai. And she says, for you, your idea of the spirit is connected to love. But in other cultures, like the samurai culture, the idea of spirit is connected to control and power. And she's sort of inviting him into this other way of seeing whatever makes him him or whatever is in him. And it's this sort of animal 
violent thing and it's not better than or worse than his civility but it's different and to him that's both enticing and scary and uh when georgie sends the present before she like has her suicide attempt it's her it's basically her top knot being cut off right <laughs> yes. in like the samurai culture loss of honor it's just like her hair most of her hair in a box but yeah and i think murdoch's point here and this gets to my maybe like my biggest point on murdoch and from on dryness to a severed head what is her goal i think like the interview we'll link to is is totally off i think she is on one plane when she's a philosopher and a, a writer of fiction trying to make these philosophical points and with respect to um, our protagonist, Martin, he needs a little honor injected into his sense of love and what love is, right? Honor Klein. Ein Klein, honor, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and that's kind of what happens at the end, right? He wins a little honor, like not a total honor culture where there's the hierarchy of all values is based on honor, but somewhere in the hierarchy, W, X, Y, and Z need to be ordered by honor if you're going to get out of this sort of human totally dispassionate world into one of more meaning or not a dry world or something i think that's part of what's going on in my dinner with andre they're discussing romance and marriage and andre tells wall sean two people can be in a room together and if they have a rich relationship they're going to be an entire adventure going on in that little room that no one else is participating in other than those two people. And early in A Severed Head, Palmer tells Martin a line that he then repeats later to Antonio about how a marriage, or maybe vice versa, about a, how a marriage is an adventure and it's a, it's involves progress and becoming, and it's not just a commitment that you change during that. But by the end of the novel, his relationship with honor seems to be the real adventure like the last lines of the book when they're sort of committing to whatever they're going to be doing together she tells him this has nothing to do with happiness which we should return to he says i wonder if i shall survive it and she says you must take your chance and then as if finally throwing himself into the deep end where she already lives he's like so must you my dear and whatever locked room awaits them or their adventures going on it seems to be like actual adventure whereas his future with antonia is totally dry and pretty much loveless, even though he wins her back with violence. There's something else that they're pursuing and it's somewhere off the page. I guess I'm wondering what the effect of the violence is on us as readers as well. Cause I'm interested in that because there's a way to read this, like a sort of a bad way to read this novel today, which is a sort of sort of a somewhat cancelable novel because Martin <laughs> is certainly a violent person. He, and he, he hits several people, including several women. And I don't think that's, I mean, that's certainly not where Murdoch is going with it, I, but I do think there's something kind of disturbing to us. And it sh I think should make us a little uneasy that he's sort of, claiming a sense of selfhood through these acts of violence. And I, and I don't really know what to make of that other than just to sort of throw it out there and say, like, what exactly is Murdoch getting at to us as readers? Because I, I would submit to you probably that insofar as she's thinking about an audience for this novel, it's probably a lot of people like Martin Lynch Gibbon, right? right. It's this sort of, it's the upper, you know, she's not writing for whatever, you know, the day laborers or something. She's writing for wealthy, well-to-do British people in the mid-century, the people who are tastemakers. Um, this is written before the, the Booker Prize has been instituted, but this is the sort of book that wins the Booker. She does, in fact, <laughs> eventually win the Booker Prize for another of her novels, but this is the sort of novel that gets nominated for the Booker Prize, wins the Booker. You know, it's a, it's a prestige novel in a lot of ways, but it's a very 
uncomfortable and sort of shocking prestige novel. Not not even just that bad things happen, because that tends to happen in prestige novels, but that it is the protagonist who's doing them and that the attitude towards it seems somewhat ambiguous. Yeah, it's it gets to a, a different question that I would kind of ask both of you, which is like, what genre or mode is this book written in? To me, it, it has to be satire, right? These love relationships, all of them, even the one that we're supposed to validate at the end between Martin and Honor, it's not like a actual love relationship. Right? No, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's only an allegory for how a love relationship should move from a place of inauthenticity to authenticity. It can't be the blueprint for how to like <laughs> jumpstart your love life is find someone you're like, you find deeply alluring, but who's in an incestuous relationship, beat the crap out of them, come to yourself <laughs> as you're almost going to kill them and wonder oh yeah, maybe I should stop and then let them leave. I mean, that's like the beginning of their falling in love. Like, obviously that's absurd and ought not to be done in real life by anybody. It's odd that she seems to, Murdoch seems to um, never break her reality while also never actually being in a reality that we recognize because of those extremes. I mean, and I know like horrible things happen in this world, but the way it's treated, the disposition she has toward it, I think you're right. It's not like, this is all absurd. She's searching after something while also saying, this isn't about how you actually do this. Because once you hit that sort of, I mean, you're invited deeper and deeper into this infatuation with honor. And who is she? What's she doing? Why does Martin, you understand why she's appealing to Martin, but you don't know why. And then when you find her in bed with Palmer, you're sort of like, okay, this is no longer, and his infatuation continues, of course, you're, this is no longer as uh, Carl said, a blueprint for how to live as a mid-century British guy who's too stuffy and needs to like let down his hair. This is now about like the violence of how you connect to other people and what it feels like to really be connected to another person. And hopefully in your life, that doesn't mean that you uh, battle each other in a basement or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think she really succeeds on her own terms here between being, when she says, you know, in On Dryness that a lot of novels, the faults of them is that they're not even written. Mm -hmm. And she means that they're either just all symbols or they're all journalism. They're all mm -hmm. just the exact stuff of real life. And this is a good book in the sense that like we're obviously in mid-century Britain. We're obviously talking about a certain sort of middle upper class people. But at the same time, it can't be real. Can't be actual yeah. factual events one after the other. So yeah, I think she does a good job of finding that middle middle space. This might be a good place to talk for a minute about the use of, you brought this up with the idea of allegory a little bit, Carl, this idea of the way that the light strains of mythology are running through this book. And I, I was thinking about that in regards to the incest, because that's obviously a theme in a lot of mythology. I think most immediately of some of the old Germanic kind of folklore mythology of brothers and sisters sleeping together um, certainly the Greek mythology as well, you know, it's present in a lot of mythology. And then there's a there's a point at which, you know, the severed head thing keeps going and changing its significance throughout. But there's at least one point where a reference is made to Medusa as the severed, you know, the severed head. And um, so that, that's certainly there. And then even at the end, this isn't really mythology, but it is basically sort of mythology. At the very end of the book, she talks about the story of Gyges and Candaules from Herodotus, which is Herodotus purports to be a historian, but when he's talking about the Persians and the pre-Persians, he's basically telling mythology. And this is a story of um, a leader, a king, and he's he's thinks his wife is so hot, and he's like, okay, you, my best friend, you got to come look at me, like you know, come look at my wife while she's naked because she's so hot. And she figures out that 
this guy's in there, you can kind of peep and Tom and at her. And so she then convinces him to kill her husband and take over because he's her husband has exposed himself as unfit, basically, because he would do this to her. And so there's this- The Roger this, Stone of his day. <laughs> there, there are all these different strains of sort of lightly mythological things running through here. But it's not mythology. This is not like Percy Jackson and the Olympians or something. These are actually mythological figures. It's just the typology is somehow deeper than it's more than just a passing reference to the myths. But it's not like myths are coming alive or something like that. <laughs> we're still in this, I think, as Friedrich said quite, quite rightly, we're still in this reality of mid-century Britain. But there's some sort of crack in the reality that's going on. And uh, Martin takes a hobby from his hobby and he goes into reading about myths. <laughs> and he can't, he can't get enough of myth, though he's originally a historian. And so it's great that we end right on Herodotus, like you're saying, Soren, who's just like the quote-unquote first historian. But chock full of myths at the same time it's an expert like use of illusion right there at the end as well the, the last severed head reference that we've circled around but haven't quoted is when honor tells martin in a quote that soren sent but i can read it if you don't mind honor tells him near the end of the book your love for me does not inhabit the real world yes it is love i do not deny it but not every love has a course to run smooth or otherwise. And this love has no course at all because of what I am. And because of what you saw, I am a terrible object of fascination for you. I am a severed head, such as primitive tribes and old alchemists used to use, anointing it with oil and putting a morsel of gold upon its tongue to make it utter prophecies. And who knows, but that long acquaintance with a severed head might not lead to strange knowledge. For such knowledge, one would have paid enough. But that is remote from love and remote from ordinary life. As real people, we do not exist for each other. She's sort of trying to thrust him back into his lane, tell him, you can't be with me because I've, I'm in a different world than you, almost literally. And the myth that sort of is pulsing beneath this, as well as her anthropological explorations of these cultish severed heads or occultish severed heads, to me, it suggests that she's keying in on like a consideration of love as something that has a rich history itself, that has rich history in myth, and that the ways people come to be intertwined with each other, whether they're lovers who just met randomly or whether they're, whether they're sister and brother, has a lot of history and that, that goes back deeply. I guess what I'm saying is she seems to be interested in our reality as something that's informed by myth. Our ideas of love come out of mythology, that we're not just interested in the prosaic coupling off of people who are good fits for each other in society, but that there are passions that drive us and there are really complicated and sometimes really gross feelings that push people apart and push people together. And mythology is one way to realize that and explore that. There's a part where there, uh, Antonia is talking to Martin and she says on page 188 that she loves him, just as she loves Alexander, she can man love both brothers, why not? And Martin's response is, I don't think you understand that word, love. And this book, as the pull quote on the cover informs us, is about the frightfulness and ruthlessness of being in love. And it is, I think, a, an inquisition into what love means to these people. And honor is not a model we want to follow as real people, but she is pushing on their idea of what it means to actually love someone. One of the things that's fascinating to me throughout the book, especially with honor, but, but I think it applies in other relationships as well, is this sort of conjunction of attraction and repulsion that's going on. And Murdoch is great at this because she's so good at these 
very cutting physical descriptions of people. And so Honor is described when you first meet her as like basically being extremely ugly or her hair is always described as being oily, right? Which is not a great description. And even, I mean, you know, that's, that's true of her, but it's also true of Antonia and even Georgie, who's, you know, much younger and maybe maybe more conventionally attractive. The, the physical descriptions of them are not super attractive, right? Mm-hmm. Antonia comes across, even though she's like sleeps with the most people over the course of the book, she's portrayed as kind of dowdy and like very, very old, sort of like rapidly decaying before his eyes, right? She keep, Her golden hair keeps graying. And so there's a sense in which Martin certainly is attracted to all these women and then also repulsed by them, but primarily certainly with honor, right? And then that, that carries over not just to her physical characteristics, but her the way she's so controlling, she controls everybody. He hates that and yet he's attracted to it. And then of course you see that ultimately in the fact that she's sleeping with her brother. That should be a deal breaker, right? For Martin, but it's not that actually just like makes him want her even more. And so there's this this intertwining of repulsion and attraction that's running through yeah, I think what you're getting to there, Sarn, is something that you surprised me when you say that Murdoch is a Platonist, because this strikes me as a very Aristotelian novel, and we're sort of being attracted and repelled by in between these poles of a you know where we're supposed to find a golden mean between them too. Mm-hmm. And when Friedrich read this passage about myth again in Andrinus, there's this line: "Real people are destructive of myth." And so I, mm-hmm. I take that building up of myth to be us being attracted to the myth side versus the history side and in the, these dichotomies that keep getting set up. And once we've sort of seen both sides, novels are places where we are allowed to, you know, air on both ends to be extremely dry and then extremely messy and then find the middle, the middle ground between them maybe. So he's finally truly destructive of myth at the end with Honor Klein, right? And they embark on perhaps the real people relationship. Uh, they get out of the novel into reality in some way. Along that line, in this line of you know these Aristotelian poles of best and worst, uh, where we're supposed to find a mean between them, I found a lot of smart upper class dichotomies being brought about. As one of you alluded to before, there's this idea of you know a marriage should involve progress, not stagnancy. Psyches need to seek consolation, but not too much. Misery is different from bitterness. Dismay is different from terror. Self-deception and truth must overlap at some point. Abject relief overlaps with spiritual nausea. We must discern the difference between freedom and will. And there, there are a few more. This strikes me as literary mannerism. So similar in a way to, you know, the like late Renaissance, highly manneristic frescoes or whatever of Raphael and people. And it's sort of like embodied for me most in like Henry James, this this kind of like neo-Victorian or post-Victorian idea that if we get the right ability to parse concepts, that's what we need from novels. That's what we need from art is this refined discernment between concepts. She even says in Andrinus that like nuanced deep concepts are something that we need in order to be freer and better people. But I wonder like, is this novel ultimately satirizing all of that? Or is it somewhat invested in it? Because we remain in these pairings and these dichotomies throughout. I would answer first by sticking in the Victorian world for a second about people who are setting up dichotomies in earnest to explore them rather than as straw men or or something to just kind of topple over and say, ha, you thought they were dichotomies. I think that, you know, against Dryness, she's talking about the 19th century novel as something that's good in its day that's exploring something interesting and until this discussion i hadn't thought of 
Murdoch in this way, but I think she's sort of an inheritor of the Brontes that she's interested in these poles between religiosity and paganism or between reason and imagination. Exactly. Sense and sensibility. Exactly. As Soren said, between attraction and repulsion and, you know, nowhere more than in Jane Eyre is there a sense of attraction and repulsion going on in this couple. And I think that there's a level of satire, as Carl said, but it's it's not there to make an easy mark of something. It's aiming to sort of really ask you, well, what do you value if you're pulled between these various things? Where do you land? And this novel doesn't present it as an argument. I think it presents it as just it's a question for you reading it. I definitely agree with that, Friedrich. And to push Carl's question in maybe a slightly different but related direction, it made me think about the very interesting sub-interest of the novel. It's not brought up explicitly a whole lot, but to pay attention to the different vocations that are on display and the different attempts to answer what reality is. And so you have sort of some of the big archetypes of the 20th century search for meaning. Honor Klein is an anthropologist, somebody who, at least in the initial, I think that's moved away from that somewhat, but in the initial phases of anthropology, you sort of have this interesting conjunction of some sense of history tied to some sense of myth, an explanatory myth or something like that. You think about the interest in mythology in early anthropology, something like the golden bow. So this conjunction of, of historical thinking and mythological thinking that's going on there. And then you have something like psychoanalysis, which is built on what two things early on case histories and mythological archetypes of, of the subconscious, right? So there's this, there, there, there are these wonderful sort of mixing together of these things. And you see it even in Alexander, who's a sculptor, he's complaining, you know, this is before it's a sort of an early hint about his relationship with Antonia, but he's sculpted this head of hers, but he says that he can't capture the reality in just the head. There's a sense of the material there, but also something of maybe Murdoch would be comfortable saying the soul that can't quite be captured in that, but it, but it has to be attempted in that artistic endeavor. And so I think there is this interesting fascination in the novel with these dyads and how they work together and how I think she is satirizing anthropology to a degree and is satirizing psychoanalysis to a degree, but not because she thinks they're worthless. I think it's partly because she thinks they themselves have limitations that need to be balanced with other things. I, I'm obviously not on the mannerist side of novel writing in, entirely, but I do think Murdoch is probably my favorite. And I would say, I guess she is a mannerist novelist. One of my favorites that I've read because, um, yeah, like both of you said, she ironizes this sense that if only we make dyads and if only we know, you know, a salad fork from a steak fork or something, we'll be better moral beings. But nevertheless, she is invested in it. It is a kind of real ideological warfare in her books is going on. And certain ideas rendered in certain ways ought to come out better than others. And I think that's real philosophy that she's working in. But I do think the other side for me of mannerism is writing philosophical writing as mood, where it's not a direct confrontation with ideas, but it's rather the like enriched sense of a mood or a style one has with respect to the existential moray or morasses that we find out there that allows people to navigate them. It's more of like a, a stoic, determined commitment to a kind of mood, a kind of affect. And I mean, that's exactly where Hemingway is writing out of. And so I think that's what makes him not written or too dry for Murdoch. And I think that's kind of a, a blind spot of hers. But the other side of it is this mannerist sense of things that I think she does extremely well. Can I move us to one spot 
that is in fact an explicit philosophical reference. There's you a would, lot of Soren. Uh, well, the one in particular that I'm going to move us to, I would. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's one, at least one, there's probably a few others as well, but there's one a very explicit philosophical reference in the book. She does a lot of tiptoeing around it, a lot of thematic. I really like that idea of philosophical mood, Carl. I think that's a really productive way to think about this novel. But there is a moment, a philosophical moment, and it's important because it happens, I would argue, one of the most important chapters of the book, one of the turning points of the book, which is this chapter where uh, Martin attacks Honor Klein in the basement. And that, as Friedrich pointed out before, seems to be the base, the weird basis of their love. The fact that he attacks her and then she doesn't tell her brother about it. Martin takes this as proof that she loves him, right? Or is, you know, is somehow fascinated by him. But right before this happens, she's talking to him and she's again sort of chiding him for not sticking up and like punching her brother out and taking his wife away by force. And she says this to him. She says, you are heroic, Mr. Lynch Gibbon. The night of infinite humiliation. One does not know whether to kiss your feet or to recommend that you have a good analysis. Which again, there's Carl's dyad, right? This dichotomy here. Either I want to kiss your feet like you're some potentate of the ancient world, or I want to send you to my brother so you can have a good, you know, a, a, a good analysis run. But the, the, the philosophical reference in here, which you, you may or may not recognize, is her, her reference to the Night of Infinite Humiliation, which is a play on this concept from my namesake, Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling, where he talks about the night of faith versus the night of infinite resignation. And very briefly, the, the night of faith is the person who's able to make the double movement of faith, is able to give up his or her worldly concerns but then also be able to receive them back again. Whereas the Knight of Infinite Resignation is somebody who can give everything up out of a sense of duty, but then is resigned to the fact that he or she has had to give those things up. So the Knight of Infinite Resignation is a lot further along than most people, but it's not quite to the level of the Knight of Faith. And so she's playing on that here by calling him the Knight of Infinite Humiliation. But what's fascinating to me about this is not that it's just some throwaway line, but that it comes at this moment of shifting power balance in the book. This is the chapter where Martin starts to move from passivity to a fuller sense of activity, even if that's a somewhat questionable sense of activity. And honor moves from being simply this imposing, imperious figure in the novel to becoming something like a real person with real attractions. And it seems to come about because of Martin's capacity to be humiliated, which is a, a really fascinating <laughs> idea to me. And I think that there is, even though it's, it's pretty muted and it's mixed in with a lot of other things, I think there is a Kierkegaardian strain in this book, which is a concern with not being indifferent or being asleep or being passive and not choosing, right? At the beginning, you could almost say Martin is something like the figure of A, the aesthete from either or, right? He says, I don't know, you know whether I want to get up and, or, or just lie down. doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to regret it either way, right? Martin, at the beginning of the book, has that lack of active choice going on. But by the end of the book, he's, he's learned somehow to make that choice, to make that daring. I think that that's an element, one element among many of the sort of tapestry that Murdoch is weaving here is that there's a need to wake up from stupor that has to be brought about by something maybe pretty jarring, which is what happens for Martin. And, and another dyad, uh, Martin is sort of opposed to Anderson, who he's perhaps so awake that nothing can bother him ever. And I just got to get into some lines about Anderson because he's got to be one of the <laughs> most evil characters in a book I've ever read. <laughs> this the classic like psychologist who, because he's a psychologist, has analyzed everything. So everything he does is always correct. And everything <laughs> you're doing is 
something he can manipulate to what he wants because he's some Zen level of psychoanalysis above everyone to the point where he can totally unproblematically have incest with his sister and manipulate her and control her. And everyone needs to talk about it whenever he wants <laughs> and sit down with him. <laughs> to throw it back just for a second to our recent movie conversation oh, about, yeah. about a serious man. He reminds me a little bit of this, of Cy Abelman from a serious man who's this sort of character who comes in and steals the wife of the main character. And he always wants to talk about it very reasonably. <laughs> uh, he's, and, and Anderson is very much that character. He, both because he's sort of rotund and not particularly threatening on a, an attractiveness level, but also because <laughs> he has this very honey-tongued way of controlling things so sorry and i oh glad he said that everyone should go listen to that episode because it shows a lot of your interests emerging in this book and in that movie and <laughs> i does. even wrote it does between pages 28 and 29 i wrote very cy abelman-esque when uh <laughs> To make us, we should all do our bad impressions of Cy Abelman because at one point, Palmer Anderson says, I admire your capacity for facing the facts. Yes, perhaps it has a sort of inevitability. I do not apply this in order to avoid my responsibility or to help Antonia to shirk her. This is, you can just hear yes, Cy Abelman. Absolutely. So if you just throw in Larry in there, it's Larry. basically straight out of a serious man. I thought of a serious man a lot too. I was just like, <laughs> what is Soren's deal with these like... <laughs> Blase middle upper middle class dudes who can't make decisions. <laughs> this really is sub sub genre. I know this isn't even like a realist novel, capital R in any way, but I I just was like so galled every time he showed up and was like, no, no one panic. He's the kind of person where like the building's on fire or something. He's like, I know what to do and calmly walks to get the fire extinguisher. And it's clearly not working fast enough. And he's like, everyone be quiet. I'm in charge. You just want someone to like wring his neck. Yeah, if anyone is satirized or any profession is satirized more thoroughly than any other, it's the psychoanalyst in this book for sure. And he's sort of the calm clinical voice who's always telling Martin, well, it's okay. You just don't understand. It's okay. He does let him off the hook in a way that honor doesn't. Absolutely. I'm going to be your parent. He becomes the right. cuckold's father for a while. <laughs> yeah. And that is, that is an interesting theme running through the book is this idea that Martin lets Palmer and Antonia turn him into the child in the relationship mm -hmm. and they're the parents. And it's, it's very strange. It's very strange. And I think Palmer too is another human endpoint. This idea that perfect distaste will get to the point where we can even all control all of our emotions perfectly mm -hmm. and the most serious emotional turmoil can simply be reasoned through and everyone will be fine and it will be totally normal and the best way to proceed that's just kind of an absurd notion oh yeah and it's this you know it's like Kierkegaardian it's existentialist right like the existence of the facts precedes the essence of the facts we need to reckon with something authentically in the moment before we find a rational way out of it, right? We can't just rationally presuppose all of the answers before living anything. Antonia follows in Palmer Anderson's idiom when she reveals the second time in the same exact way that she's been having an affair this time <laughs> with uh, Martin's brother. And she comes in, she pours the drink, she pours him the rest of the drink and she tells him exactly what's been going on. And then she reacts again like, well, I thought you would be reasonable about this. I've only been sleeping with your brother since we met. Can't you be like a civil person about this? Um, <laughs> those are the heavy moments of satire that are really tasty in this book. So any, anything else we want to cover before we wrap up? We're out of time. 
Anything else important to, to, to cover? I think we've hit most of the, the big things. Yeah. Well, well, we'll call it a wrap for tonight. Thank you all so much for discussing this book. I think it's a really wonderful book, certainly an underread book. Even for Murdoch, it's not one of the ones that immediately comes up when you discuss her work, but I think it's a really lovely one. We will be back soon. We're very excited. So this is next time up free, is Friedrich's first choice. Do you want to tell us just briefly about that, Friedrich? Yes, I selected Shusaku Endo's 1960s novel, Silence, the English translation. None of us are readers of Japanese, uh, which Martin Scorsese famously turned into a movie starring Andrew Garfield. And it's a great novel about Jesuit missionaries going to Japan in the 17th century to minister to converts that turns into a book about commensurability between cultures and translatability and, uh, and the nature of faith. It's a great read. And yeah. a different kind of night of infinite humiliation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So we're going to have a great discussion about that next time. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. This is the, the Reader's Care Moth, in case you forgot. Um, you can follow us on social media or on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Reader's Karamazov. We are on Twitter at the Reader's K. You can email us, the Reader's Karamazov at gmail.com. Send in some questions if you have them. We'd love to talk about anything we've missed along the way on any of the books, or if you just have a, you want some life advice from any of us, that's a dubious prospect, but you can write in. And lastly, of course, we want to plug our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Reader's Karamazov, where you can get some really wonderful bonus episodes, primarily on film. I think we will, I can go ahead and say this, we will next time be pairing our main discussion of the book Silence with a patrons only episode discussion of the Scorsese film of Silence, which I think we all agree is, is quite a wonderful film worth discussing. So we will do that <laughs> for patrons next time. Until then, however, uh, we'll have Cat Keyboard play us out. Oh, those Russians.